Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. MILB.com's the show before the show podcast hitting the road for episode number 15 sitting in a hotel lobby. Hi Jake Signer. Hey, how's uh yeah, I am not in a hotel lobby. I'm in my same cushy New York <laughs> Your palatial New York estate. Mhm. I have everything I have functioning internet. <laughs> It's a novel concept at the the caliber of hotels that I stay at. Uh, <laughs> hey, welcome in. It's episode number 15 of the show before the show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast. I'm Tyler Mon. He is Jake Seiner. And uh, got a good show coming up for you this week. It has been a, a rash of exciting couple of weeks now for the Minnesota Twins fans who have seen Byron Buxton promoted to the show. Miguel Sano has set it up to the show. Max Kepler is going to be in the Futures game. And one of those core group of guys who is just dominating at the AA level to start this season will join us on the show today as Jake will have a conversation with Adam. Brett Walker the second and uh, uh, one of our favorite guys to talk to and a guy who is again kind of one of the quieter names almost in a system that is loaded we talked about a little bit last week here's so much about the Cubs or the Mets the twins are right there and uh, it's that has been a very fun level to watch this year yeah I think uh, I think Walker might be sneaking up on some people with the power numbers and the batting average is, is ticking up and he's the strikeouts are still there but he's controlling them we'll talk a little bit about that he got some good stuff on Ways he's adjusting his approach to hopefully keep that power and, and cut down on the strikeouts. Um, something that I thought was, was interesting and an approach I hadn't necessarily uh, talked to a guy about before. Well, speaking so, of strikeouts... Look at that good, segue. Good segue. Let's dive right into three strikes this week. We are going to go strike one. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Arizona Diamondbacks trade of 2014 first-round draft pick Tuki Toussaint to the Atlanta Braves, which caught a lot of people off guard, uh, and the Diamondbacks took a lot of heat for it. And since then, things have been a little bit cagey around this issue as both it pertains to the Diamondbacks and to Tuki Toussaint and what people have said, and in most notably, I think, what people have not said. Uh, last night in his notes column, Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports uh, had kind of an interesting little tidbit of something that a lot of people had not heard uh, really from, I think, either side so far this year, but comes out now at an interesting time and gives you maybe a little inkling into some of the stuff that was going on in this trade. Here's the note, quote, shortly after trading right-hander Tuki Toussaint, Diamondbacks general manager Dave Stewart said, quote, guys are mentioning that he throws 96 miles per hour. He hasn't seen 96 since he's been here. We haven't seen 96 once. Well, Toussaint touched 98 in his most recent start for the Braves Class A Rome affiliate on Saturday night, pitching five scoreless innings, according to Ken Rosenthal. Uh, Jake, what do you make of this whole thing? I'm uh, I'm a little baffled. So here's I guess I can maybe run through first just what I know and what we we kind of have confirmed on our end. 
So, uh, Tucson, I think the velocity was a little bit inconsistent when he was with Arizona. I don't have firm numbers, but from people who saw him, reports I've seen, um, you know, velocity was up and down. He wasn't, I think in high school, he was a guy who was hitting 98 with regularity, if you, if you believe the things you read and all that. And that, he wasn't quite that guy. But uh, his first time out, he's made two starts now with Rome since this trade happened. His first start was on June 28th. He went four and a third innings. He walked five guys. He struck out five guys. Uh, and there was a, a writer online, Chris Blessing, who writes for uh, Baseball HQ and, and I think for some Tigers blogs and things. He had him sitting 92-93 for most of that start, topping out at 93. Uh, and then Toussaint made his second start on July 4th on Saturday and was much better. Went five scoreless innings, had two walks, two strikeouts. The game ended up being rained out. He'd only thrown, I think, around 60 pitches at that point. So he would have thrown more, but had a really effective outing. I talked to him after that outing. He said, one, that in the June 28th outing that was against Augusta, he said that at that point he hadn't pitched in 10 days. That was So the trade timed out with the Midwest League All-Star game to where he made his last start and had to wait 10 days and shifted organizations. In the meantime, he had a, a really short bullpen session with Rowan once he got there, but didn't really get to get comfortable there. That combined with maybe a little bit of nerves in his first start. He just physically said he didn't feel quite right. The word he used was rhythm. He didn't feel like he had his rhythm. So he did, he did think he was throwing harder on July 4th. I didn't get any velocity stuff in the course of wrote a story on that. Um, but I've, I've asked around since then. I've at least gotten it confirmed that there have been some 96s at some point since he's been with the Braves. Um, so 96 is something he's at least doing. I can't confirm the 98 from Ken Rosenthal, but, you know, not, not too big of a, a leap to expect that maybe he had a 98 on one gun. The thing that's been even more interesting about this to me, so there was when Ken Rosenthal from Fox Sports was reporting this trade between the Diamondbacks and the Braves, he talked about how Diamondbacks hadn't let Toussaint throw a breaking ball in a game yet this year in all of 2015, um, which I thought was a really interesting thing. Toussaint is a fastball, curveball guy. Those are his, his best two pitches. Um, certainly can understand if the Diamondbacks were forcing him to use the changeup more to develop that pitch. That's pretty common. I think we see a lot of teams, you know, the Pirates are um, really big, a good example of that. But a lot of teams in Class A, they say, hey, we know you have this curveball. We want you to establish a changeup. But to have a guy just not throw it at all is a little bit unusual. And then I asked Toussaint about, about that on Saturday after his, his five scoreless innings on July 4th. And he declined comment on uh, on the question. I asked him, you know, I heard the Diamondbacks were not letting you throw the breaking ball, and he said, I just don't want to go there. I don't want to touch that, which was really, I mean, I get no comments on things sometimes, and you can understand why. I'm having a hard time figuring out kind of where the no comment is coming from. I kind of want to chalk it up to just being a 19-year-old kid who wants to avoid any kind of controversy or something, but there have been a lot of things kind of going on around this story that have been really hard to kind of figure out and, and just understand uh, maybe how the Diamondbacks were really viewing Toussaint and how maybe Toussaint was viewing his time with the Diamondbacks. If something, um, you know, I mean, we talked a little about how uh, when we, we talked about the trade when it happened, about how Toussaint mentioned that he had had some, some focus issues and that was something he was trying to work on was being more focused throughout his starts. You wonder if Arizona maybe had issues with that, and we, we talked a little bit about that, but we haven't heard anything on Arizona's end that there was a, a makeup problem there. Just a lot of really confusing uh, signals coming from a lot of different directions that, I'm kind of waiting for somebody to do like a big expose on on what happened here and trying to figure out what we can. But, um, just a really kind of baffling situation. I think the the one thing that we seem to know right now is that there seems 
to be a lot more behind the scenes in this entire situation than maybe anybody has figured out before. I mean, we don't necessarily know the specifics of it, but right now that appears to be the case, that there's either something that went on between those two sides or the Diamondbacks just started viewing Toussaint in a much different way from what they thought they were getting when they drafted him. And, you know, I mean, I give the kid a lot of credit to be that age and say, I don't want to talk about this, I don't want to go there, whatever it is. If it's something where he's not comfortable discussing it, at that age, you know, don't try to give a comment where you're in a circumstance where maybe something's going to come out wrong or you're going to say something that you didn't mean to convey. So, you know, like you said, sometimes you get that, and that's fine. But it does seem to suggest that there is a lot more going on there. And it just kind of makes you scratch your head from what we've seen, from everything we heard about uh, about Tukey going into the draft last year and his makeup. And, you know, I mean, again, talking with the Diamondbacks player development staff uh, in spring training this year, it seemed like they were in love with this kid. As they should have been i mean to scout him and take him in the first round last year you know a lot about him before he comes into the organization so that seems a little bit odd that that closely to the time that you you know scout him draft him start his development track then all of a sudden you ship him away and say no we just have guys who are older who are higher up in the system than him i mean the justification of the trade seemed weird the silence, I think, from the Diamondbacks on a lot of this stuff so far has seemed weird. And now Tukey trying to, you know, take the high road and not talk about a lot of that suggests that there is more going on, I think, than what we maybe initially thought when that trade went down. Yeah, and I just, I mean, just, I, I think it's, I don't know if Dave Stewart is trying to, to cover himself by, by continuing to talk about this trade and, and continue to, um, you know, address this or, or what, but I think throwing a, a 19-year-old kid under the bus like that is, is, Maybe a move that lacks a little class. I think the one thing that we, we definitely know at this point is that the Diamondbacks thought less of Tuki Toussaint, um, certainly than they thought other teams might, and, and less than they did a year ago when they drafted him. And granted, that was a different regime that drafted him. Dave Stewart came in after that. Tony Russo was there, but just getting his feet wet with the organization. Um, you can understand him not necessarily being in the draft room and um, you know as versed on, on the guys they're talking about and things. But it seems like the... The D-backs decided they no longer thought that Toussaint was the asset that other teams might have thought, but I think, uh, and we talked about this when the trade happens, if you're going to trade an asset that everybody else at least still considers to be a really prime asset, you better get a, a prime return, which they didn't really do. And now to just continue to bring this up when uh, I think the reason it's gotten so much press is because everybody realizes that, that they could have gotten much more um, and certainly a, a, you know, a flashier package and something with just more pure value to it, to the team and to the organization than what they got. Um, and, and to try to justify that by just saying, yeah, but that kid just wasn't that good. Um, and, and to make things up about him not being that good, too, or, or at least to, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's head scratching. It's really it's kind of baffling. It definitely does feel like, I mean, kind of like you said, there is probably going to be something coming down the pike that shows us a little bit more, gives us a little bit more insight into what happened to lead to that trade. But it seems like a kind of a head scratcher as of right now. Uh, strike two this week, Jake. Uh, Robert Stevenson heads up to AAA in the Cincinnati Reds organization. It's had kind of a, an up and down, uh, a bounce around year. It was a very, very rough April, better May, a fantastic June, and he has made his debut uh, at the AAA level now in July. Um, what do you see from Stevenson in a season that, you know, has kind of seen him take his lumps? He's the top prospect in the Reds organization. June, like I said, fantastic at AA, a 2-3 and three record, a 2.53 ERA. To get his feet wet now at AAA and kind of be on the doorstep for a team that is maybe in a transitional phase. Uh, first time through, five innings, a couple of runs on four hits. He struck out six. He walked three. What's your view on Stevenson? Stevenson now going forward now that he stepped out of Pensacola. Yeah, that was that was very nice of you to call it an up and down season or a little <laughs> bit up and down. It's been I, I can't think of many seasons for for a pitching prospect that have 
had more volatility to them. Um, and frankly, I think that's a reason for, for optimism with Stevens. And he, he opened the year. Um, he had a, a start on May 6th where he walked seven guys, and that was sandwiched between starts where he walked four guys. One of those was in a uh, – the first one of those was just over two-thirds of an inning. Uh, his walk rate was just – it just skyrocketed for a while. And then on May 23rd, he had a start where he walked five guys, but he offset that by striking out 11 guys in four and two-thirds innings. Stuff has never been a question for Stevenson. He has ace stuff. If he can learn to corral that and command that as well as, as you know, an average major league starter or a little bit better than average, he's going to be in a rotation and he's going to be one of the best pitchers in baseball. His, his stuff is, is on par with pretty much anybody in the minor leagues. Might be like a, a half step behind like a Lucas Giolito or something. But um, no questioning that he can be effective as long as he is around the strike zone and, and throwing effective strikes with it. It's just been, and so he had all those games with all those walks, and then he had the, the 11 strikeout game with five walks. The next game he had 10 strikeouts, one walk. The next game, seven strikeouts, one walk. Then eight strikeouts, two walks. And then he threw in another six walk game just to, to throw us off the scent, and then came back with 10 strikeouts, one walk. And, and so the total package in double A was a, a pitcher with definitely a few too many walks, but he was striking out well over a batter per inning. The ERA was 3.67. Um, the average against was was a buck ninety nine. Nobody's hitting him. He's you know, not a guy that gets hit hard really ever. Um, really interesting to see how he transitions to AAA. And this is I, I can't think of anything to do with this one except just kind of wait and see because it's really just a matter of can he get to the point where he can be in the strike zone enough to let that stuff play up. I think it's not entirely dissimilar to to what we saw with Alex Meyer and and sort of the progression he had with uh, with Minnesota. Meyer had. I think fewer innings, actually, even though he was a little bit older. He'd had some injury things and, and whatnot in his past that had kept him off the mound. Uh, Stevenson has, has not really had any injury issues, uh, which I think works for him, and I think his, his stuff is a little more well-rounded. I don't think the changeup is necessarily as big a concern as it was for Meyer, but just the, the ability to consistently throw strikes, especially for a, a bigger guy, is something that takes a little while, and Stevenson isn't as big as, as Meyer is. But, um, yeah, just the guy I really just kind of have to wait and, and see if, if you know, it seems like he's made some kind of adjustment if he's going to be able to consistently, you know, apply that going forward with, with Louisville. You know, you see sometimes guys battle control issues like this during a season. I don't think you ever see him to this extreme, though. You never really see a guy vacillate between, you know, walking seven in and outing, only striking out four, and then three starts later he strikes out 11, walks five, ten, and one the next two, the next time out. It doesn't often swing to those ends of the pendulum that much. So that's what I think has become most impressive from Stevenson over these last handful of times out is that he's been able to get things back mid-stride this season. That's not an easy thing to do. I mean, if it's a mechanical thing or something that you know somebody saw and got corrected and that's why june you know turned into such a takeoff month for him then that's a really positive step forward but a lot of guys that snowballs into something they battle for the rest of the season and sometimes it's something they battle the next season because command issues like that can turn into one of those nagging things uh you don't often see it be so extreme on one side and then swing so positively back to the other so that's i mean i i agree i think that's one of his big keys now going forward and you know to jump into the AAA level, five innings your first time out, uh, only give up a couple of runs and keep that same strong command, struck out six, walk three. You like that two-to-one ratio. You'd probably like for it to be a little bit better, but definitely uh, a much improved stance from what we saw early on in the season for Stevenson. Yeah, and the one thing that we do know mechanically, you talked to, to us in late May for a story with the MILB reporter Robert Emmerich, um, and he talked about how he did change the grip on his fastball. Um, he was having trouble staying on top of the ball. He's kind of cutting around it a little bit and, and losing his command that way. 
Um, so that seems to be the adjustment he's made, and it seems like that's been an improvement, but it's been sort of an inconsistent improvement, and this is all nothing new for Stevenson. This has been the, the question on him ever since he was, he was drafted back in 2011 was, was can he corral this you know, outrageous stuff that he has He's doing it in flashes, and that's that's better than not doing it at all. And you know, like I said, there's not a whole lot of guys who can match that stuff. So the potential is there for him to be as, as good or better than anybody in the minors right now. It's really just a, a question of of how consistent he can really command that stuff. Some guys never get that figured out, especially yep. when you have stuff that good. Sometimes that makes it even more difficult. Uh, strike three this week, Jake Richie Schaefer, third baseman in the Durham Bulls uh, roster in the Tampa Bay Rays organization. He's coming up on Stockwatch, uh, and you got a chance to take a look at what has turned into a, a pretty impressive season for Richie. Tell us a little bit about Schaefer and uh, what he brings now being a step away from the big leagues, a former first-round pick out of Clemson. Yes, yeah, so he was a first-round pick in 2012 out of Clemson, and he's been outrageously good as a power hitting third baseman this year. He's up to 19 home runs, which already ties a career high through 73 games. Uh, he's been really, really good since he got to Durham. He got a promotion uh, about a month and change ago. He's slugging 639 there, which is like 70 points better than anybody else with at least 100 plate appearances. Um, he's been really good, and that's a little bit of a change because he had a really rough year last year and had a rough year the year before. Uh, in 2013, his first full season, they sent him to Class A Advanced Charlotte. He hit 254. He hit 11 home runs. It sounds like he was a guy who, I mean, Charlotte is, of all the Florida State League ballparks for right-handed hitters, power hitters especially, it's probably the worst place to be. And in general, that league is not a real good place to be a, a right-handed hitter. It hits a lot of fly balls, and that's exactly what Schaefer is. So, he, I mean, he struck out a little bit more than you'd want, and he didn't walk that much, but really the strikeout and walk numbers were not that bad. The problem was just that the power was just not in line with, I mean, Schaefer was drafted as a guy who there were concerns that maybe he couldn't stick at third base, but the bat was good enough where even if he had to move first, the Rays were thinking, yeah, he's, he's got me. I'm sure the Rays probably thought he was going to stick at third, and it seems like they were right to think that, but the bat people were thinking could play at first base. There was supposed to be that much power. And Schaefer said it was really just a frustrating experience. In 2013, he was just hitting fly ball after fly ball that was getting just to the warning track or hitting off the wall and, and left center. And Charlotte said the humidity and the wind there just kind of built a one-two that really frustrated him. And that paired with when they promoted him to double-A the next year, um, just the pressures of making that jump to double-A, he thought he needed to sort of overhaul himself and change a lot of things, just be able to handle that. So he completely over overdid his swing, got came up with a whole new swing and sort of a different approach and try to kind of recreate himself as he was making the transition to double A and that was an absolute disaster. The first half in double A last year, he had, uh, by the end of June he was hitting two oh four with a two ninety on base percentage and three ninety six slugging percentage. Um, obviously well below what was expected of him. That dropped him completely off the race top prospect list. Uh, so over the All Star break last year he kind of went back and, and took a couple days and reflected and just decided he was gonna Go back to his old swing, go back to his old approach, see if he could get it to work at double A. And ever since then, he has just taken off. Um, so he made some adjustments to, he had his old swing that is now his current swing, uses a bit of a leg kick. And he says one thing that he's changed is he's adjusted the height of that leg kick and he'll adjust it at bat to at bat just based on the pitcher's delivery. Uh, he thinks a problem he had maybe early in his career was he'd be a little too quick or a little too late on guys just because of the leg kick. And so he's figured out how to adjust that based on sort of the pace of the pitcher's delivery. Uh, that and he did had some, some little adjustments to his bat path. You think he's not hitting, uh, when he connects, he's not hitting the ball quite as high anymore. He's getting a little more of a line drive. He's getting rid of just a little bit of loft, but still definitely a, a fly ball hitter. Um, things started really clicking into place for him last year in August with uh, AA Montgomery. 
He hit 273 with a 398 on base percentage and a 591 slugging percentage, seven home runs. So that was good. And then in the offseason, he did something that he hadn't done before. Schaefer's a, a really skinny six foot three guy, or he was. He was 204 at the end of the 2014 season. First day of the offseason, he went to the United States Performance Center, which in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, he got a personal trainer there. He had him work on his nutrition stuff and work on just the way that he was training. He ended up putting on 25 pounds, um, and that led him to, he says he's using a heavier bat now, and he's actually swinging easier or what feels easier, but he's still able to get the same bat speed despite that. So all of a sudden, those balls that in Charlotte were ending up on the warning track to shy of the warning track, maybe banging off the wall on a good day, they're now just soaring over the fence in Durham, and Durham's a pretty hitter-friendly ballpark for uh, a right-handed hitter, too. So all those things are kind of combining, and he now you know, looks like a guy who, I mean, 19 home runs at the around the midpoint of the season, uh, that's easy plus power, and that's something that you were kind of hoping to see from Schaefer you know, when they drafted him out of Clemson as a, a pretty advanced college bat. Uh, don't know if he's ever going to be a, a high batting average guy. The strikeouts are still there, and, and frankly, they've ticked up a little bit this year, but um, the power is good enough, and he's willing to draw his walks, and, and the overall profile is, is really attractive. He probably won't be playing a whole lot of third base in Tampa Bay. They have that Longoria kid who I think is going to be there for a few more years, but uh, really a, a good story on a guy who's managed to turn things around and, and uh, you know, an interesting one, and one that I think at this point you can probably believe in just based on the, the added strength and um, you know going back to, to an approach that he knows really works for him. It's a really cool story, and the Rays have done such a good job. I mean, you hear stories like that come out of the Rays system. It feels like three times as often as you hear them out of other systems, just the ways that they're able to find that in guys, whether it's a nutrition thing or an adding muscle thing or a different approach in one way or another. They they do a fantastic job with that, and uh, Richie Schaefer's a guy to keep an eye on because he is knocking on the door right now. Uh, he had that slash line that added up to an 832 OPS at AAA Montgomery in 39 games. He's gotten better, as Jake mentioned, in Durham so far, 989 OPS through his first 34 games games there as we record this on Tuesday. By the way, I uh, got to stop by Durham Bulls Athletic Park for the first time uh, last week. That place is unbelievable. That <laughs> may be my favorite ballpark in the entire universe. It's And the best feature, uh, I saw uh, USA versus Canada, United States Collegiate National Team played a, a friendly series against the Cuban National Team. And uh, in the pregame festivities, they have like the ballpark rules and regulations video that you have everywhere. But it's A, voiced by Susan Sarandon, and B, <laughs> comprised entirely of scenes from Bull Durham because that is awesome. <laughs> Big fan. Are you, are you swinging by Charlotte on this little road I trip? did. I did actually make a stop in Charlotte uh, on the 4th, actually. I uh, went and caught. That was game four of this little five-game series oh, the U.S. Nice. and Cuba did. And uh, that ballpark is th – the view from that ballpark is not to be missed. If you're in the Charlotte area and you get a chance to stop by uh, BB&T Ballpark there, man, that view is amazing. It's like they just slapped it down at the base of every gigantic building in downtown Charlotte. Wait, were there fireworks there for July 4th? There were, yeah. I actually ended up having to work. I worked that night, and I had a hotel that sort of overlooked where the fireworks were, but there was one building right in the way of all of them. But ah. it was like the fireworks show, they were like billing on its own. It was like, I guess it's, it's like a Charlotte tradition for the July fireworks, and I can't remember well, This the is what I'm wondering, is, is watching fireworks from that ballpark has to be yeah, incredible. Yeah, it's got to be amazing, especially from the third base side, which overlooks the, the skyline right. best. Um, but yeah, if you're in Charlotte, make sure you you check out a game there because that ballpark is it's pretty unbelievable yeah i haven't been but i hear nothing but incredible things about 
that and the food I hear is really good there too. It is. And you know what's crazy about North Carolina, just in a quick dovetail before we get into our interview segment today, but when you drive around, you hop on any highway in North Carolina and you end up in a minor league ballpark in like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> like So far on this trip, driven by, stopped in Greensboro today, visited the Grasshoppers, a uh, friend of mine, son of Gwinnett Braves general manager, North Johnson. Stephen Johnson works there, kind of gave me a tour of the ballpark. Greensboro's ballpark is amazing. Uh, Winston-Salem is about, I think, maybe 40 minutes from there. Uh, Hickory they were playing Hickory today. Hickory's only about an hour and a half away. Kannapolis is very close. Burlington is here. Charlotte's over on the, the western part of the state. Uh, Kinston, North Carolina used to have a, a team there about an hour and a half southeast or so of the Raleigh area. And that's like maybe half of the teams that are in this entire state. It's amazing. This is like the one of the central hubs of minor league baseball, uh, whether it's the South Atlantic League, Carolina League, uh, the International League, or the AAA level. It's um. It's pretty cool. Basically, you swing a dead cat in North Carolina, you're going to hit a minor league or somewhere. Yeah, I don't, don't know why don't, you'd actually don't, be swinging don't throw, a dead cat. Don't, don't throw my dead cats at minor it's, leagues. If you're going to do it, I guess <laughs> Brett Phillips is, is the guy. He seems to be most luckless. He's probably he's the guy who can handle it best. <laughs> he can handle weird animals crawling at him or, I guess, being thrown. Who is, who the, is the pitcher who picked up the snake and threw it last week? That was last week in Bakersfield. Tyler Pike, I believe Yeah, that Tyler was. Pike. That's and, uh, and Bakersfield immediately tweeted out, like, Tyler Pike needs a nickname now. And that is how nicknames should be uh, brought about. We, yep. We've had enough of this, like, first initial, first name, first syllable, last name start you know guy picks up a snake and tosses it off the field He's did, 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 did we get him a nickname i don't did think we happen? did send your suggestions podcast at milb.com <laughs> <laughs> We'll find a nickname for Tyler Pike yet. <laughs> Minnesota Twins organization is where we are headed next. Adam Brett Walker of the Twins organization, the minor league home run leader, sits down for a conversation with Jake right now. Our guest this week is an outfielder in the Minnesota Twins organization, joined now by Adam Brett Walker. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well, very well. So the first thing I actually wanted to ask you about is I've seen a number of iterations for your name. I've seen you as Adam Brett Walker. I think at one point we had you on the site as A.B. Walker. I think I've seen you referred once or twice as just Adam Walker. I'm just curious if you could explain the name, if, if there's one that you prefer, and kind of how uh, you've ended up known by, by a few different monikers through your, your pro career. Um, well, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I kind of got drafted. I just kind of wrote my name down. Adam Brett Walker II wrote, wrote the full name, but you know, growing up, I was always Adam Brett. My dad having the same name, so uh, you know, I think uh, now I'm kind of been going with Adam Brett, um, and that's just kind of what I've been rolling with now. Yeah, and you mentioned your dad. I want to ask about that too, because he's somebody who folks in Minnesota might already be familiar with. He was a running back for the Vikings in the 1980s. Just curious that. Ask about how maybe that has uh, uh, influenced your professional sports career and also just your experience with the, the people in Minnesota. What kind of impression you had even before you turned pro with, with that fan base? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely uh, pretty cool that, uh, you know, he had to play with the Vikings and I got drafted by the Minnesota Twins. Kind of, uh, kind of crazy how that happened, but, you know, uh, he, uh, he definitely inspired me throughout my career as far as uh, pursuing my dreams and, you know, he got, he got a chance to play in the NFL. Um, you know, he's always dreamed of doing that, and he just wants me to, uh, he wants me to make it, you know, and he wants me to do my best and uh, wish the best for me. Yeah, and one thing you're, uh, you're obviously pretty well known for with Twins fans is your ability to hit home runs. You have 23 of them this year. You've hit at least 20-plus in each of your three full seasons in the minor leagues now. 
Um, he just actually won the Player of the Month award in the Southern League in June with a bunch of home runs and had a stretch where he hit five and six games, including 405 uh, in a five-game series at Montgomery after the All-Star break. I just want to ask, when, when things are really clicking like that for you, when those home runs are coming, I'm curious if there's something in particular that you think is um, different or, or better about your games, kind of what it feels like when you're in a zone like that and, and what you're, you're looking for to maybe get yourself into one of those zones. Um, you know, I think uh, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm in a zone like that, I'm just making sure I'm swinging at good pitches, um, making sure I take advantage of uh, when, pitchers, when pitchers miss up in the zone. And, uh, you know, I think I, I did a pretty good job, you know, uh, this year, making sure I, I don't miss those pitches. You know, you don't always get a get a whole lot of them. Uh, you might only get one per game, but you know, when I think uh, I'm able to put a barrel on the ball on a on a pitch like that, good stuff happens. Yeah, it's interesting talking about pitches up in the zone. I think we hear from a lot of guys who are taller, and you're you're six foot four. That a lot of those guys, just because they have the longer arms, actually like getting the ball a little more down in the zone and, and something they can kind of lift and use maybe some some natural loft that comes with that height. Um, you think you're more of a guy who looks for the ball up in the zone and, and more over the plate? And I'm curious kind of how uh, you think your swing works just with your size and, and with your power to kind of allow you to, to tap into that as often as you have. Um, you know, honestly, I think, uh, you know, I've kind of grown up, and I, I'm thinking more of a low ball hitter, but, you know, I've kind of been trying to take an approach to making sure I try to get the ball up just to help with, uh, you know, some of the plate discipline. I think sometimes I chase balls down. You know, because I like the ball down there, but, you know, I try to bring him up a little bit. And sometimes, you know, I try to get the ball up, but then I end up swinging at a ball that's still down, but I'm able to, to barrel it up. And, uh, you know, I think that's just kind of the approach I'm taking right now. Uh, and, and that's my game plan, trying to get the ball up. You know, I think uh, those hanging breaking balls, hanging change-ups, those are some of the balls that you could, uh, that you could really get into because they've already been elevated for you. But, uh, you know, that's the approach, and I'm trying to stick with that, and uh, so far it's been going pretty well. Yeah, an interesting thing that's been, been happening with your season so far is you've gotten better and better each month you've been in the Southern League now. This is your first year in AA. Um, but as the, the power numbers have ticked up and the batting average has ticked up and the OPS and a lot of the numbers, the strikeouts have actually ticked up for you too. I'm curious how, just as a, a power hitter, you try to strike a balance between uh, being aggressive and, and risking a little bit of swing and miss like that um, if you think you're, you're at a point right now where you have a good balance, if the strikeouts are something you worry about, even when the rest of your game obviously is shining through uh, pretty clearly at the double-A level? Um, you know, honestly, uh, I, I haven't really been uh, worrying about the strikeouts a whole lot. I, I try not to let that get to me. I know, I mean, I know it does happen, but, uh, you know, I just trying to just become a better hitter, you know. I think it's, I become a better hitter, uh, have a better approach at the plate, have a better game plan, you know, I think the strikeouts will um, will cut down just by, uh, you know, just by becoming a better hitter, um, yeah. having better at that. But, I mean, I just try to try to be aggressive. I want to try to uh, help drive in runs and, and uh, help the team out. Yeah, and it sounds like the, the adjustment you're talking about with looking for pitches a little more up in the zone, whether directly or indirectly, is kind of maybe trying to influence that. I'm curious if that's something that has been talked about, if you think maybe that's a, a fair way to look at that as an adjustment. When looking up at the zone, you're more likely to, to avoid swinging at those pitches that are down and might drop out of the strike zone. Do you think that's accurate? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of been the, the approach so far. And, uh, you know, I think it has helped me to kind of lay off those balls down in the zone. Um, that you know, I definitely don't want to be swinging at. So uh, I think it has been helping me lately. All right. 
Uh, wanted to ask about some of the guys that have been teammates with you in the twin system. Obviously, uh, a pretty loaded minor league system, and um, you've come up through the system with a lot of those guys. Been on teams that won championships with Fort Myers and things. Um, I wanted to start just asking about playing with Byron Buxton. You've uh, been playing with him for a number of years. He's obviously in the the major leagues now, but was with you there in Double A Chattanooga. I want to ask kind of what it's been like to, to share a clubhouse with him, what it's like to kind of have him uh, as an outfielder playing next to you as you've developed, how you guys maybe have been able to motivate each other as two of the higher draft picks come through that system and, and two of the more uh, loudened prospects. Kind of what that experience was like and, and, you know, if you talked to him at all since he got to the majors, if that gives you any motivation, if you really even need it to, to try to get up there and, and to Minnesota soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been able to play with uh, Byron for a couple of years now. I mean, and that's great. You know, he's a great guy. He's uh, definitely fun to play with. Um, you know, I like to consider him one of my good friends now, um, getting to know him. But, you know, he's a great ball player. Um, I mean, I think everybody's uh, known that. Just, um, since he's come out, you know, he's got a lot of tools. Um, but, you know, especially in the outfield, uh, definitely makes my job easier. Uh, he can really fly, so. Um, but, you know, he's a very exciting player. I'm definitely happy for him in the – you know, I hope uh, I can keep working, and one day we could, uh, I could join him up there in Minnesota, and we could uh, keep playing together. Yeah, and another Lookouts teammate who just got a promotion last week is, is Miguel Sano. Uh, I get the impression from talking to some people who have seen him maybe outside the clubhouse but seen him on the field and things that he's a little bit of a, a goofball. I'm just curious if you think that's an accurate assessment of him and, and maybe talk a little bit about what he's like to share a clubhouse with. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, he's a... I guess a goofball is a good way to put it. He, uh, you know, he always he comes out. He has a uh, good time every day. You know, brings a lot of energy um, to the field. You know, he's definitely fun to play with. This is my first year that I've actually really been able to play with him. Um, you know, I've been around him during spring training and instructional leagues, but uh, this is the first season I've been able to play with him. And you know, it's been a lot of fun. I've been able to build a connection with him. And, uh, you know, he's definitely fun to play with. Um, you know, he's always having a good time. And that, and that helps you. Um, uh, that helps me. Um, you know, just having people around that are always uh, upbeat, having a lot of energy, definitely uh, makes things a lot easier when uh, things aren't going your way if you have teammates that will help uh, bring you up like him. Yeah, I think this year with Chattanooga, you've had a, a roster that is full of a lot of guys that I think the Twins envision – uh, being on the major league team together, and some of some of you have come up through Cedar Rapids and Fort Myers together, but also some guys like Miguel Sano and um, and Jose Barrios has kind of been there along with you guys. But um, you all sort of ended up at Double A together at the start of the season. So I'm curious, just what um, the clubhouse dynamic was like. If it seems like uh, something maybe was emphasized is building even more chemistry than maybe you would with a normal team, just because it's uh, at this point it's pretty clear that you guys are envisioned to be the team that will be in Minnesota, or at least many of you as as big players in that. Um, over the next half decade, decade. I'm just curious if that's something you guys ever talk about, if that's something you think influenced either the way that the coaches wanted you guys to mesh or uh, kind of what that experience was like having so many guys who are, are so highly thought of by people inside and outside the organization all really in one place at, at one time like that. Uh, you know, I think uh, as a group, I think we all know that we have, uh, have a lot of uh, talent on that team, um, on this team. But, uh, you know, I think that... We definitely know that if uh, we keep working, that, that one day we could all be up there uh, in Minnesota um, trying to help the, help the ball club out. But, you know, we're, we're going to double right now. You know, we still we still all have, have a lot of work to put in. But I think that we know that uh, we have the ability to uh, 
to be pretty good ball players. And, you know, I think uh, we just try to come out every day. Um, you know, we try to have a winning mentality um, in the clubhouse, and I think that uh, we, we would love to keep coming up together and uh, keep, that, keep that connection and try to help the ball club in Minnesota. Yeah, and the last question I have for you before I let you go, I actually want to ask you about your manager there in Chattanooga, Doug Mankiewicz. You played for him last year, and the impression I get from talking to a lot of guys who played with him, I did a story on him, uh, just with a lot of the Fort Myers guys last year, is that he's a very intense guy but manages to do that while being very much a player's manager, and just about everybody I talk to has some story of a time that uh, Mankiewicz got very uh, emotional, maybe heated, maybe just you know showing a lot of affection for a player or something like that. I'm curious if you have any stories or just any general impressions of what it's been like to, to play for Doug and, and sort of how he goes about connecting with players, being a former player himself. Um, you know, I've uh, been playing with Doug for the past two years now, and uh, you know, he's a great manager. Uh, you know, he, he, can, he can be intense sometimes, but... I think that's because he knows that uh, we have a pretty talented team, and uh, he expects a lot of us. Um, you know, we try to go out there every day and play our best. And when we're not playing our best, uh, we're not playing the game the way we should. He's gonna he lets us know. But uh, I, I mean, but I respect that. I think that's good. I think he holds in a high standard, and I think uh, I think it's helpless. I think he's really put a winning mentality um, in our mindset and. I think I think that's pretty big. Uh, you know, he's he's a lot of fun to play with, and you know, when when you're playing the when you're playing the game the right way, uh, you know, he's he's fun. Uh, but you know, if he holds us to a standard where he wants, he expects a lot of us, and uh, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun playing with him the past two years. You know, he's always there for you. Um, you can always go talk to him. He's always here to help you, and uh, you know, he wants he wants to see all of us make it. I think that's the thing. He really cares about all of us. And, uh, you know, he's been a lot of fun to play with. All right, Adam Brett Walker is an outfielder with the Minnesota Twins playing at Double A Chattanooga. Adam, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Best of luck with everything going forward. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Adam Brett Walker II has cranked 23 home runs through his first 75 games this season. That almost matches his total from all of last year, and he has turned himself into one of the premier power prospects in all minor league baseball. Big thanks to him for joining the show today. Uh, in addition to him, man, that team has been loaded this year. <laughs> you look up and down that roster, they have been a fun team. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that with, with Adam. You obviously heard him talking about Miguel Sano and Byron Buxton, the other guy that um, offensively has, has been grabbing some headlines and I wrote about him a little bit last week is Max Kepler who's the, the German born outfielder um, he's played some first base this year but it sounds like that was more on a team need basis I think his future's probably in a corner outfield spot but um, it's just been breaking the ball for, uh, for, for most of the season for Chattanooga and especially of late uh, he's got the batting average up to 328 he's got 23 doubles 8 triples 923 OPS, um, just a really, really good season. It sounds like the, the big key for him was, was sort of just a matter of confidence. It sounds like he was a guy who, despite being six foot four and pretty well built and, and having some power, just had it in his head that he needed to be a, he's a left-handed hitter, had it in his head that he needed to be a guy who used a left-center gap and took sort of a Freddie Freeman approach to hitting. And the Twins, Doug Mankiewicz uh, and, and Chad Allen, the hitting coach there, Mankiewicz being the manager, Allen being the hitting coach, just kind of said, you know, we want you to not be afraid to pull the ball, to not you know be afraid to get out in front of something with those long arms and, and let yourself leverage it. And it sounds like that's 
Uh, I know we had in the – he was the guy we featured in Stockwatch last week. We have the heat map we borrowed from MLBfarm.com. And you can see just how much more he's using the right center gap this year with, with uh, Chattanooga compared to last year with Fort Myers. So it sounds like that's been the big difference with Kepler, and that's an exciting development for the Twins who all of a sudden maybe have more outfielders and they're going to know what to do with with, with Buxton and the majors and these guys all, all on the rise. One of the things, too, for a guy like Kepler is, you know, you sign a, a prospect out of Germany, a, a European-born prospect comes over, you know, at, let's say at 18 years old, and he basically has, has the equivalent amount of at-bats and innings played as an American, maybe 14 or 15-year-old. That's one of the issues with guys who come from lesser-known baseball countries. They just don't play as much. So sometimes the developmental road is a little bit slower for them because they're making up all of that ground. But for the way that he's just blown up this year, that's been really cool to see. And another guy to not sleep on on that team is uh, Jorge Polanco, who is the seventh-ranked prospect in the organization so far this year, a 301 average in 67 games, reaching at a 347 rate. He's slugging 409. That's a 755 OPS. He's stolen 14 out of 20 attempts successfully. Uh, he's another one, a switch hitter. I mean, they that team, the Twins have got a lot on the way. We've touched on this now for a couple of weeks, but really, really fun team to watch in uh, in Chattanooga and you know, sending guys up to to not just Rochester, but all the way to to Target Field now. And uh, it's a, a new era coming to the American League Central for a team that's had a few seasons where they've been waiting for this to come along. So pretty cool to see for uh, Minnesota Twins fans. Let's shift gears and head off the field a little bit. Well, we'll stay on the field, but this time people will be lit on fire. And if that's not a segue to get you to stick around for Ben Hill, I don't know what will be. Benjamin Hill will uh, discuss promos next. Back from the road once more, our good pal Benjamin Hill joins the show. We've been without Ben for two weeks now. It feels like we haven't spoken in a year. Hi, Ben. Hi. It has been two weeks, but it feels like a year to me as well. It's been so sad. It's been so we've been. It's been such a, a dark cloud looming over the uh, the show before the show, not having some Benjamin Hill sunshine pumped into the into our ear canals. Welcome back. <laughs> I can't top that metaphor. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, tell us about uh, the last trip. You basically took the entire state of Virginia by storm. But uh, how how the trip go? I did. Um, you know, I drove the whole way, leaving from New York City, and when I returned the rental car. Um, you know, had miles logged on the receipt, and it was 2,591 miles. That's like coast to coast. Like, I was like, that's almost driving across the country. Yeah. What I did was bum around Virginia and into West Virginia, and then a pit stop in Pittsburgh. So there was a lot of driving there, but it was a Virginia-based trip, and uh, it's six ballparks in six days, so nothing too epic. But uh, I never really um, explored that state, and he used the opportunity to then end in Morgantown and visit the West Virginia Black Bears. So... Five full-season teams in Virginia, then Morgantown, and uh, a lot of baseball. Yeah, Ben, we've talked to you about how it can be uh, a pain to maybe plan out these little trips you do, but it's a fun pain. And you did a story, actually, on somebody who probably could help you with that if you, you reached out, and uh, Dave Rosenfield for Norfolk, who does the entire, what does he do, just the International League schedule every year? Yeah, I talked to the legendary Dave Rosenfield when I was in Norfolk, which was the second stop on, on my trip. Uh, he's 86 years old, um, has been the general manager of the Tides since they were called the Tidewater Tides and played in the Carolina League in 1963. And ever since that 1963 season, he's been making the schedule, first for the Carolina League and then when they switched to the International League in 1969 for the International League. So it's interesting. I think people don't think too much about how schedules are made. Uh, recently, there have been some computer formulas devised that 
might send it into a completely computerized thing. But when you think about, you know, how many people are beholden to that schedule, players, fans, front office, and how it dictates the time spent by so many people over the course of a season, it's all put together by this one super veteran in the Norfolk Tides front office, Dave Rosenfield, who does it not with anything high tech, you know, just with uh, pencil and paper and erasers and, as he put it, brute force. That story is one of the most fascinating things because he related it to it being a giant puzzle. And the the concept of, well, and the story that I loved when he talked about the first meeting where he said, no, a monkey could do better than this, complaining about a schedule in an initial meeting where, you know, the team that he was working for had seven weekend home series and another team had 39 or something like that. You could not pay me enough money to try to figure out the schedule for an entire league. And, and especially nowadays where one of the things that he noted is you have to take into account, okay, this team gets a sellout no matter what on July 4th. This team has a convention in town this weekend. It's going to be difficult to get hotel rooms for that. This Whatever. The Indian Apple is in 500 at a certain time. The Kentucky Derby is in Louisville at a certain time. That blows my mind. I don't even think I have a question at the end of this. I just wanted to say how much that blows my mind. Yeah, I, I can't imagine doing it either. I think like anything in life, you have to do it. You could probably devise a system, but when you take into, in, into account, you know, off days, protected days where you have to be home, protected days where you can't be home, um, you know, the travel times, the game time, it just goes on and on, and it's 144 games and 14 teams and three uneven divisions, and yeah, I, I, I don't even want to think about it. I, I mean, think I would bang my head in the wall. I think computers will, you know, one day, probably in the not-too-distant future, uh, the correct programs and formulas and algorithms will be devised so a computer can tackle this kind of task, but... It's not just a case at this point of Dave Rosenfield being, you know, 86 years old and therefore stubborn. I think he's been doing it this long also because there really is not or has not been an alternative in the world of schedule making. You just have to have a dedicated individual who just plows through it until you get it right. And then it has to be approved by the league. And I mean, what a, what a job. And you think 200 hours a year and he's been doing it since 1963. Um, that's He's probably spent a cumulative year of his life just making schedules. I also I want to know who the holdout was because in the Carolina League in 1963, you said that it passed by a 7-1 to one vote. I want to know who the one person was like, nope, not going to do it this way. Let's guess that it was the person who first made the schedule <laughs> who he then called a monkey or said a monkey could do better. This schedule is yeah, terrible. Really? Vote. I think your schedule is terrible. I'm voting no. Yeah, I'm going to guess he made an enemy of that individual. <laughs> Yeah, read the story MILB. it's one of the best ones this year it's fascinating yeah 200 i just can't imagine spending 200 hours a year just working out a puzzle like that i don't like puzzles enough for that uh ben another thing we wanted to ask you about was you made a visit to morgantown to uh check out the new uh west virginia affiliate there i want to ask you about that ballpark and kind of what that experience was like yeah well um i'm still trying to make sure i can pronounce the name of the facility correctly correctly i went to Pitt, not too far from there but it's Monongahela. 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 It's the Monongahela River, but then this is spelled differently. So I guess we'll just still say Monongahela, but it's spelled differently than the river. Anyway, Monongahela County Ballpark in Morgantown, West Virginia, technically Granville, West Virginia, a smaller neighboring town, uh, is the home of the West Virginia Black Bears of the New York Penn League, as well as the WVU baseball team. Um, just opened this year. It's part of a, I'd say, a slowly developing trend of having short season teams share their facilities with uh, collegiate programs, which works out for both involved, uh, both parties. Basically, the college season ends and 
transitions right into the New York Penn League season. Uh, beautiful ballpark in terms of location, you know, the uh, topography there, lots of hills and peaks and valleys. So when you're in that ballpark, you have a great view of Morgantown, some of the surrounding towns. Um, it's kind of built into a hillside. Their berm area is not yet open to the public yet because there's some issues with how steep it is because of the uh, you know just where the ballpark is in terms of how hilly that land is in general um, a fairly no frills facility but just very nice with a great view and it was just exciting to go to a place and, and see the community starting to kind of figure out what minor league baseball is about because as familiar as we are with minor league baseball if you're the town you live in has not had it you know it takes some getting used to to be like okay this is what this product is so it's interesting to go to a place where they're trying to establish that culture and, and just to see a new ballpark. Ben, let's switch gears and talk promo preview for this week because one of the, the legendary promotional stunts and names across the minors is back. Ted Batchelor will take the field in Norfolk, which will break down a new state barrier for him. Tell us about Ted and his, uh, his act that has become so well-known throughout the minors. Ted Batchelor, the man on fire, and that is literally who he is. He is a stuntman who gets lit on fire and he's been lit on fire in many capacities because he's got some kind of lifelong obsession with being set on fire. But starting in 2010, he started bringing that act to minor league ballparks, starting uh, with the Savannah Sand Nats. And I think it's a bit of an extreme stunt, so he's not getting tons of bookings every year, but he is basically lit on fire. Not basically, he is lit on fire at home plate and he runs the base paths, takes him about 45 seconds and then he'll dive headfirst into home and he's fully engulfed in flames the whole time. Uh, I talked to him a couple years ago, and he told me he puts a uh, fire retardant gel all over his body. I don't know what that gel is. And then wraps himself, swaddles, I think would be the word, in uh, like layers of wool and cotton clothing, and uh, then just gets lit up and runs. It and looks like he douses himself in gasoline, or has somebody else douse him Oh, yes, something? yes, yes. That's how he is lit up. Yeah, so once he's swaddled appropriately, he is... <laughs> Uh, dowsing gasoline and then lit with a torch. I know when, I don't know how the Norfolk Tides are going to do it on Friday, July 10th, but uh, in Savannah they picked a fan, a lucky <laughs> fan from the crowd who got to literally light this guy on fire. Uh, um, and they followed it with a fireworks show, which I think has generally been the case. He slides into home and then the team does fireworks. I noticed the Norfolk Tides aren't doing that. They're having fireworks the night before, which, hey, that's cool, but it seems like after a stuntman dies into home to completely on fire it seems the right thing to do is then to set off fireworks but yeah. and this i'm disappointed he doesn't like stop drop and roll once he gets to home plate fire awareness like fire cool. safety yeah, nope. yeah he, he could he i think like a lot of people who do very extreme kind of uh strange things you know when, when i've talked to him he said this is stupid I, I wouldn't recommend anyone else does it um and i don't think just strictly out of competition but i just think he's driven by this compulsion to be on fire, realizes it's not something to recommend. I think that's why it's been kind of slow going at minor league parks, because while teams are intrigued, there's this feeling of like, this is a little horrifying at the same time, seeing in the darkness a burning man. <laughs> also, is there a limit how many times you can light yourself on fire in one like week? Like, I feel like you probably want to space those out a little. I feel like it's like playing football. You don't want to play in a, an NFL game. Yeah, and, and he mentioned that as well. Uh, <laughs> And he told me the one time he got the most severe burns is when he wore uh, articles of clothing and a kind of suit before getting lit on fire that was damp from a previous performance. So I think you need time for the clothes to air out and just for the body to re recover. I cannot imagine what's involved with uh, 
being lit on fire. And, you know, he does have Guinness Book of World Records, uh, longest full body burn of two minutes and 57 seconds. Uh, he if you don't think that's a long another, time either, like go listen to a Nickelback song for two minutes and 57 seconds and nope. think of how long that is. Nope. <laughs> nope. You picked a very long example of two minutes and 57 seconds, you know. I would rather be on fire. <laughs> Here's the thing. You said you met him, and you said, like, he has eyebrows. Like, it's not yeah. like you wouldn't know yeah. that he's a person who just lights himself on fire. Yeah, Ted and, I, Ted and I have talked through the years. I've actually never seen his act. Unfortunately, I really hope to cross paths with him at a park. But I met him at the 2010 winter meetings when he got a booth at the trade show to kind of just be like, hey, I'm the guy who will get lit on fire. <laughs> If you want me to, I'm trying to get lit on fire in all 50 states. Help me out. Um, but if you look at him, he's, you know, just a smiling, nice guy there with his wife, Debbie, uh, you know, a little balding. He just looks like, you know, your, your neighbor in middle America in Pleasantville. And little do you know, he's the guy with the Guinness, World, Guinness Book of World Records uh, for longest full body burn, among other. I, I love strange American people, and when that crosses paths in my own baseball, I get to write about them, and I love it. You, you repeated yourself there with strange and American. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. Just all, I was going to say, this is something that would not happen elsewhere. Although, uh, some people may know, I do some work with the Australian Baseball League, and not only does he want to take it to all 50 states, he very much wants to go international. He contacts me like every so often. He'll send an email and be like, hey, when are we going to get my act over to Sydney? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know what the Australian regulations are for a guy lighting himself on fire and running the bases in a sport they're not that familiar with. What I, what I heard there is that for our Australian listeners, the only thing stopping a man from lighting himself on fire in Australia right now is Tyler Moss. Yeah, it's the, it's the indifference of Tyler. Yeah. Yeah, he was ruined yeah, for everyone. Podcast at MILB.com. Send your complaints. Uh, ben, let's continue on the promo preview this week. I, there's a very cool – it's the last uh, promo that's listed in this week's preview, but something that I thought was super cool, and you said this has actually gone on for a few years, but the Williamsport Crosscutters will be doing Dominican plate dinner in which Dominican players will serve Dominican foods, and proceeds from that dinner will go to a charity supporting sustainable development in the Dominican Republic. Tell us about that because that is a very cool – I think – so often, uh, the Latin players in baseball are kind of, I don't want to say pushed to the side, but they're not necessarily always included the way that their American counterparts are, their Canadian counterparts are, or the guys who speak English. It's very difficult. If you're a kid from, you know, San Pedro de Macquarie and you get sent all of a sudden to wherever, Quad Cities, you're in Iowa, you're in rural Illinois, you're somewhere, you don't speak the language, you're a long way from home. It's a very difficult life. And this seems like a really cool thing that the crosscutters do, especially a short season team to do it for very young players who are a long way from home. Yeah, I mean, I think you summed it up as well as I could. I believe this is the third annual Dominican plate dinner that they've done in Williamsport, but I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, a lot of times teams don't get the Dominican and, and uh, Latin American players as involved in the community events just because of the language barrier, because of the players being overwhelmed with adjusting to a new culture, and you know, kind of a discomfort on both parties in trying to incorporate them into such new surroundings. And I, I love that the Crosscutters have found a way to make it about the Dominican players, but make it in a situation which they can just unselfconsciously celebrate their culture, bring it to an area, you know, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, where it might not be too prominent, and do it for a charity that benefits their home country as well. Um, I would love to see more teams, you know, do something like that because a lot of the time it is, you know, more often than not, the American guys uh, who are in the public eye just because they've been in America their whole life, they're comfortable really wherever they go. It, at least to a certain extent, whereas players from other countries are not. So it's great to see solutions to uh, to that issue, you know, that benefit all parties. 
He is Benjamin Hill. You can find him on Twitter at Ben's Biz. You can check out the blog with all of the content, all the good stuff from this past trip and more of it to come. Ben'sBiz.MLBlogs.com. You can check out Ben's stuff as always on MILB.com as well. And Ben, it's good to have you back, man. We missed you very much. Thank you. It just started raining very hard here in New York City. Celebrating your return. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it's, it's showing what it's like when I'm not yeah. Planning on lighting yourself on fire. You know? I was gonna, I was gonna say, or they're telling us about fire safety, and this is how you keep Ted Bachelor alive, basically. There That's it. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. It just brings such a different life back to the show when we get our good pal Benjamin Hill on. Missed it. He, and he brought a good guy. story too. He brought a story about somebody lighting himself on fire. I'm still. We have we have a video of this on the site. In it's ben. incredible. It is absolutely incredible. And the dude, it's not like oh man, like his arm is on fire. The guy is entirely like if you had a nightmare about a human being on fire running at you through the dark, it would be this. Like it's <laughs> it's an entire human torch. There's some movie clip I'm thinking of, and I can't think of what movie it's from. Is it is it Anchorman or somebody just lights himself on fire and just runs around? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think there is a scene in Anchorman actually where that happens. I it's think it's like in the that, fight but... between all the news teams. Yeah, that's what it's it's like that, but it's <laughs> dark. It, like the stadium turned all the lights off, so it's pitch black, and there's just like a figure. <laughs> it's it's like a combination of that, and then it reminds you of uh, what V for Vendetta. I think there's a scene like that. I think that's what I'm thinking of actually. Also, it takes 45 seconds or thereabouts for Ted Bassler to run the bases. So again, go listen to Nickelback for 45 seconds and think about how long that is to sit in a dark stadium and watch a human being on fire in the dark rounding the bases. Is this Manny Ramirez lighting himself on fire (laughs) and rounding the bases? Why is it taking him so long? Oh, man. Minor League Baseball is the show before the show podcast. Wrap it up. Episode number 15. I'm getting confused looks from people in the hotel lobby here at the Fairfield Inn and Suites in Durham. Uh, But uh, before we go... There's a lot of fun stuff coming up both at the major league and minor league levels this week, and one of them kind of crosses both. Uh, The 2015 All-Star Futures game is coming up on Sunday, July 12th, 3 p.m. Eastern time on MLB Network and MLB.com. There are so many good prospects in this game this year. Every year there are, but there are so many good guys to watch this season. So be tuned into that. Uh, We also have the AAA All-Star game coming up on the 15th. So we've got uh, just stars for days coming up on uh, on MLB.com, MILB.com, MLB Network, everywhere you can find it. I did see we got Cody Decker is going to be in the uh, the AAA Home Run Derby. I'm excited for that. That's going to be great. I I hope you live tweet it. I'm expecting a Superman cape or a Batman cape (laughs) at least. He'll do it like Dwight Howard in a dunk contest 10 years ago. I have high expectations, high hopes. If they let him live tweet from the batter's box, they better. They better. That's the only way you can do it if Cody Decker is going to be in it. So keep an eye out for both of those futures game and the AAA All-Star game coming up. The AAA All-Star game rounds us out uh, for uh, big-time All-Star games in the minors. The Eastern League All-Star game is the same day, but California Carolina League's already done. The Class A leagues are already done. Uh, Short-season leagues will follow a little bit later, but the, the big rash of full-season minor league All-Star games almost behind us. It's well, I gotta say, the short season league's got to be actually happening soon. We're like two weeks into the, the seven-week season. That's happens. true. That is true. Uh, August 18th for New York Penn, and the Northwest and Pioneer Leagues will be doing their first uh, jointly hosted All-Star game. That's on August 4th in Spokane, Washington. So that'll be fun. Oh, That's coming up in a little while, too. I didn't know they were doing that this year. That's exciting. It's going to be pretty cool. I heard about that. 
So we are, uh, it's all-star city around here. It's all-star central. Big thanks, as always, to Benjamin Hill. Big thanks to Adam Brett Walker II as well for joining the show this week. And uh, until next week, uh, you can listen to the podcast, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen on the website uh, at MILB.com. And we tweet out our RSS feed as well. So if you don't have iTunes, if you don't have an iPhone or a place to access iTunes podcasts, you can find our RSS feed as well. And uh, until next week, we'll talk some more baseball then, and we will talk to you then. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.